there and welcome to another episode of the Jasmine Star Show. My guest today is Wes Cow. Now, we have been going back and forth communicating and it has been a long time in the making. And the reason why I have been so insanely patient is because she is the co-founder of Alt-MBA and this is a way for entrepreneurs, creators, and creatives to create cohort-based education. And she's doing this alongside of Seth Godin. Now, for those of you who've been around the podcast for a minute, Seth has been a guest on the podcast. I'm absolutely obsessed. So anyone who's going to have a business venture with Seth Godin has to be grade A supreme, hit it out of the ballpark all day, every day. And I could not be more excited because she's led over 150 launches. And this is a person who has worked with everything from like Fortune 500 brands and startups. And she is a leading expert in B2C marketing. And she's here to share her insight and advice and what it means in the business world, how we can create cohorts, education, things just thinking outside of the box. And I just would like to say hi and welcome to West Cow. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Jasmine. Really excited to chat today. Ah, this is fantastic. Now, I'm going to start a little bit um, a little bit with your history, but peeling it back farther from all of the success you've had as a creative, as a business, uh, idea maker as a tastemaker. Now you started a nonprofit when you were 16. Can you tell us more about that and how that experience really shaped your thoughts around leadership? Now I know we're going to get into cohort-based education, but let's first start here about leadership because I think it's going to set the frame for the rest of the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I was 16. And at that time I had not planned anything bigger than a birthday party before. So I had this grand idea that I wanted to, to give back, to do something interesting to uh, to be able to to contribute to my community. And once I had the idea, I quickly realized that uh, turning it into reality was much harder than than I had envisioned. So basically, I went around to uh, a bunch of different um, retailers, Walmart, Target, uh, Long's Drugs, asking for donations. And my idea was I wanted to donate backpacks and school supplies to underprivileged kids who, you know, in new school year uh, might not have the supplies that they needed. You know, and for me, um, having those supplies, having a fresh backpack, you know, a fresh outfit, it always felt so inspiring that, you know, this is the year I was going to be cool. Like this, you know, new year, new you. Um, and so it was, it was more about what, what the, the new backpack um, and a new school supplies uh, embodied. Um, and so okay, I, I so wanted wait, to- Can we peel back oh, a little bit here? So I am just a born and bred storyteller. So take me back to the West Who 16. Where does this idea come from? Like, oh, a new backpack just, just doesn't represent like a physical item. It represents a fresh beginning and it it represents equality with your fellow students and classmates. So what 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 sparked that idea? Like where did that start? Yeah, well, one day I was cleaning my room uh and I had I had uh, poured out all my notebooks, pencils, tons of Lisa Frank, tons of Hello Kitty, pencils, pens, pencil cases, erasers and um I was kind of organizing it all and my dad, you know, walked in and he started to lecture me about how lucky I was that I had all these things that we'd spent so much money and all these, you know, supplies and all my, you know, pencils and whatnot and stationery. And normally when he gave this lecture about how lucky I was, I just kind of nodded and smiled and waited for him to go away. Um, and, you know, this time, you know, after he left, I started, you know, I, I continued organizing and I realized that I had way too many supplies, pencils, mm. pens, notebooks, notepads that I, that I was ever going to be able to use. And they brought me so much joy, you know, and every single, you know, fresh pencil, fresh notebook to symbolize a new beginning for me. Uh, and, um, I thought, well, if some kids don't have this, you know, what if I donated some of these supplies to them so that they could also feel that, that sense of, um, of a fresh beginning. Um, and so Mm -hmm. that's, that's what really sparked this idea. Um, and, uh, you know, I had mentioned turning it into a reality was much harder. Um, I basically went around to all these different stores and got rejected by these different store managers who, um, you know, if I called or if I, if I showed up their store, you know, I, I had this little folder where I printed out, you know, here's my, my vision for this, my mission, here's what I'm trying to do. Um, and they basically said, you are a free kid trying to get, or you are a kid trying to get free stuff. Like this is, you know, you're not going to pull a fast one on me, kid. Like you have no backing, like you're, you know, you're not part of any organization. You have no history of doing anything like this. Like you're asking me to sign a check or give you boxes of, um, boxes of backpacks, boxes of notebooks. Like why would I as a store manager do that? Um, and at the time I remember just being shocked that like people didn't 
trust me, you know? And now looking back, it's like, <laughs> of course, like I gave them no reason to trust me, you know? Like they had no idea what I was going to do with that stuff. Like sell it on the black market or something. I don't know. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, it, that, that first year, um, I was not able to get any donations, but I'd already promised a, a couple um, foster care centers, family resource centers, domestic violence shelters, um, that I was going to give them backpacks. Oh. And so I was in a little bit of a quandary. I ended up using my own savings, my own money to buy the backpacks and fill them with school supplies because I felt so bad about, you know, having mm-hmm. promised that. Um, but one thing that I did do that, that was pretty clever, that helped set me up for the following year was um, when I was donating the backpacks, I called local reporters and said like, hey, look, I'm doing this thing. I'm giving back to the community. This is local, you know, interesting news. Uh, and a couple of reporters were interested. And I ended up being on the front page of the local newspaper. And uh, I then bought 50 copies of this paper. And then the following year, when I was going around- Good for you. To get donations, yes. I went- Right, yes. I went to all the same stores, show them this, and they kind of dangle the possibility that look like oh, if so you good. want to donate, I'm going to mention that the Walmart on Driscoll Avenue donated, or the manager at Walgreens like really cares about giving back, like you know they're part of the community. Um, and so I basically uh, leveled up every year that I ran this. I ran it through through the middle of college, um, and all the same organization that uh, reject me either in person or you know writing letters to you know JanSport, Pentel. These are all stationery companies. Um, backpack companies uh, ended up donating. Like Jansport sent boxes of boxes of uh, backpacks. Pentel sent pens, papers, click erasers, highlighters, um, and and it was this amazing lesson for me in being um, being resourceful. First mm-hmm. of all, um, and really, it sparked my um, lifelong and and you know to this day interest in marketing. It really taught me the importance of not just thinking that your idea is going to sell itself, that just because you are excited about something that other people are going to feel it and have a reason to want to participate, to want to join you, to want to be a part of anything. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really up to us as the creator, the entrepreneur, the, you know, the nonprofit uh, uh, founder, whatever, whatever you're doing, it's up to you to paint that picture for someone and make it juicy so that they want to be a part of it. Like no one owes us anything. No one owed me their attention, you know, donations or anything. Um, and it was just this great lesson that I'm so glad that I learned really early on because it's really um, it's it's been a huge part of of you know other entrepreneurial mm. entrepreneurial endeavors since then. Starting the Alton Bay with Seth Godin, now being co-founder of Maven, a uh, marketplace and platform for core based course creators um, that I started two years ago. You know, in every one of these entrepreneurial ventures, um, you know, you really have to think about what makes it interesting and, and what's in it, what's in it for me for, for that other person, right? We have to answer that question for other people, for them to want to be involved. And one thing I want to point out, well, there's actually two things I want to point out. Number one, anyone who references Lisa Frank and Hello Kitty, I mean, just, you just go up in cool points, Wes, like you, I cool points, bonus points for you. And then secondly, one thing that I don't want anybody to gloss over is yes, it's about marketing, but one key component was everybody said no. So for all intents and purposes, your nonprofit didn't work the first year. And this is where a lot of times people quit, but instead Wes stayed true to her word, walked in integrity, documented the process, even though Everyone said no, so that the following year, there were people on board. And so I just kind of want to point there that like there's this thing that we as entrepreneurs have to have a stomach for people saying no, and then we have to have the grit to continue pushing on, even though people have already said no. So we go from like that nonprofit, that 16-year-old Wes, and then what happens thereafter that continues to foster that entrepreneurial spirit? So I went to UC Berkeley for college, studied business, focused on marketing, um, afterwards, I went to work for Gap Inc. So I r- did a rotational program that was absolutely amazing. Um, Gap has this this great program where they pick about fifteen different uh, rising leaders that are young, you know, college graduates who are who are entering Gap, um, and they rotate you through Banana Republic, Old Navy, and Gap. So you can really learn about all the different, you know, the three different brands uh, under Gap's umbrella. Um, in core retail functions, ranging from merchandising to uh, business analysis to supply chain management. So it's this amazing um, foundation in business fundamentals that, you know, coming out of school, you know, I think a lot of people think about, do I want to go to a startup or a smaller organization? 
Uh, and there's a lot of learnings to be had there or do my own thing, right? Uh, or do I want to go to a bigger company and kind of learn the ropes? So I, you know, kind of, I did the latter uh, and I'm really glad for it because, you know, in my subsequent roles, um, the the companies that I've, that I've gone to since then got smaller and smaller until I started my own. Uh, and so kind of, it was great being in a place where there were many people doing the same thing that I was doing that I could learn from. So a lot of times you're, you're the only marketer, right? Or you're the only salesperson or you're the only Correct. designer. And, you know, it's, it's great experience because you, you get a huge range of projects that you get to work on. Um, but it can also be a little bit lonely and you're kind of piecing together knowledge uh, on your own. Uh, whereas mm. for me at Gap, there were, dozens of other um, inventory planners, business analysts, merchandisers who uh, were working on different brands at different levels, working on different parts of the business. Um, and so it was, it was awesome just seeing, you know, for the same function of business analysis that, you know, the, the seven other people on my team who were doing this for various segments, ranging from, you know, knits, wovens, denim, outerwear, uh, all kind of approached their craft a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And the way that they presented their ideas, the way that they got buy-in from senior management, the way that they had, uh, you know, certain people were a little bit more aggressive in their forecasts, certain people were more conservative, like just seeing the range of different people doing kind of the same thing really, but with a bunch of different approaches was so, um, so fascinating for me and so informative. And, you know, to this day, I, I care a lot about craft. Uh, and when I say craft, I mean, um, really understanding the levers of your function and kind of the underlying principles. You know, I feel like a lot of people um, get really excited and swept up by um, wanting to get promoted, right? Wanting to advance and up the ladder, you know, move up in your career. Like it's all about advancement um, as the end goal. But I really, um, I believe in falling in love with with the actual work, with getting really good at the actual work and being able to see nuances that other people just miss because they're just, they're either not you know, looking as carefully as you are, or they don't, they don't care, or they haven't trained their eye to notice, um, patterns that you see that, that other people don't. Um, so starting, uh, in a place where there were so many other people, you know, doing the same thing was, was, uh, really, really informative for me. Um, and then, as I mentioned, you know, every year thereafter or every uh, role thereafter was smaller and smaller. Um, this is what I find interesting. Okay. So there, uh, most of the people who are going to be listening to this podcast, most of them are going to have a very small team or do everything on their own. So you had said I started wide and then you narrowed down to each subsequent role, the, the, the team got smaller because then you were entirely on your own and then subsequently then build out a team. What have you, like going through that full gamut, what have you learned? Like what were the key takeaways that you learned in like that larger type sphere and then all of a sudden then doing it on your own? What were some key takeaways to be like, I learned this from this particular person, group of people that I've applied immediately when I was starting out my new business. So think of yourself in the first three to five years of your business. You're like, I learned that key takeaway that I'm applying here. Yeah. Is this for um, a takeaway that I learned when I was in a bigger company that I applied to a smaller org or just yeah, when I was, so you know, when I'm times, working on Maven now, let's say last so, two years, what are some things that I... Well, actually we can apply that in both of them because every time we start something new, I always feel like I'm going back. Anytime I've pivoted, it's just like, oh, well, you have to have the humility. Like we're starting all over. We're like babies in this. So when I think of like a lot of times people who are listening, they didn't have the opportunity to go through a leadership kind of uh, sequence through Gap Inc. And people hear that and they're like, wow, you had an opportunity to go through a leadership type thing. You went through rotations. And then what you quickly realized was like, despite the advancements, when you fell in love with what you did, it then empowered you to see things and do things differently fine, great. But a lot of people have never had that. So what were some key things, takeaways? Like, so obviously you're saying fall in love with the work, but let's put this down. Yes. Starting Maven, starting new projects in your business career. What were some of those key things to be like, oh, got that, learned that I'm applying that immediately in my newish business? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Um, yeah, I think that one, um, one really big lesson that I learned uh, that I continue to apply, you know, daily, even now is thinking about the next step. Like, what does this mean for the business now? I think a lot of times, um, there's a disconnect between strategy, you know, with a capital S on paper, makes a lot of sense, looks good. It's well articulated. And then once that strategy meets reality and kind of hits <laughs> the ground, like there's this great, <laughs> this great quote by, by Mike Tyson, who said, um, everyone, something like everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. You know, and it's like, yes, like that is so true. Like there's yes. you can lay these amazing plans and great forecasts or, 
you know, strategies of what you want to do for your business. Um, but the minute that it hits reality, things, things mm-hmm. change, you know, and, and you get your first set of data points, you now have primary data that you are interacting with and, and trying to understand and how to interpret. Um, and, uh, so for me, a big, a big, um, you know, insight and, and principle that I always keep in mind is being, um, ruthlessly practical. Like, I don't want to spend too much time putting together pie-in-the-sky pie strategies that that seem like they make sense and are, you know, overly complex and and require, um, you know, us to do these 10 other things before this thing can work. Like, it should work, like, now. Like, we need it to work now, you know? Like, especially now running running a startup and, you know, before starting Maven and after leaving uh, Alt MBA, I was consulting for two years. So I was a solopreneur. It was just me you know, running a consulting practice, being content creator. Um, and there's just not a lot of space for um, for pontificating about strategies. There's there's like, there's just very little room for that. You know, you really need to think about what is the practical thing that I can do with the levers that I have today, with right. the assets that I have today and with the constraints right. that I have today. You know, like, yes. great. Like if you're like, oh, you know, if, if this weren't the case, and we had access to these people and we had this amount of money, we could do all these great things. It's like, that doesn't really help us right now. Right. Like that, that's not, right. that's not relevant. Like that's like really useless actually, you know? And so, so this idea of being ruthlessly practical of thinking about what are, what are my current assets, my current constraints, the levers that I currently have access to, those are things that I think about every day. Um, and mm. I think, you know, especially as a solo business owner, a solopreneur, it's so important to start there because otherwise it's really easy to get uh, carried away with, you know, plans that, that require too many other steps to, to ever work um, and to get discouraged too, that, you know, you wish you had a bigger budget or you wish you had a bigger team to help you produce right. this or that. Like if only I had, you know, this or that, um, you know, the best solopreneurs that I know start with what they have. And then they, they gradually, you know, they, level up to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And actually that's, that's really what I did with Packs of Love, the nonprofit uh, that I started, you know, the backpacks is, you know, starting something small and then leveraging that, like sticking a wedge in there somewhere, like leveraging that and then trading up every year to get bigger and bigger brands to work with more donations, uh, you know, bigger goals. Right. But like, it's always about working with what you currently have. Okay. So number one, I just want to pause there and I'm just going to like repeat back what I've heard. It's tempting to look at all the things we don't have and then wish and plan as if that was the case. And so then it leaves us in a space of want and lack instead of what you're saying is have a strategy, but use what you have today. Use the constraints, you like using the lack using the not having and figuring out a way, what can I do with what I have today? And what can I do with what I have today now? Did I hear that correctly? Yes, exactly. Okay. And so when, when we take it like that and then we apply it, now we've gone through a lot of iterations, but kind of like as fast forwards, we start off with young Wes doing this big mission, up-leveling every year, learning principles, going to UC Berkeley, getting a part of Gap Inc., learning, learning, learning. So let's fast forward to how did you get involved with Alt-NBA, then go into consulting as a solo businesspreneur, and then start Maven. Let's kind of conceptualize that journey so that any entrepreneur who's listening can self-identify with that part of the narrative. And then we're going to move into like cohort-based education because that's where I love, love, love to dwell. So I just want to give like the background and then give everybody a taste of who you are and like your foundational beliefs. Yeah. So at the time when I started working with Seth, it was 2014. I was living in San Francisco and I was wanting to move to New York. And on a whim, I saw that Seth Godin had posted a blog post saying that he was looking for a special projects lead for a six-month role to help him figure out what to do next. I think at that time, he had sold off his previous company that he had worked on for you know for about a decade and was kind of at a crossroads and wanted to figure out what's the next big project that I should really invest in. Um, and I saw this blog post and I thought, well, I want to move to New York anyway. So even if you know this is a six-month thing and I happen to get it, you know, afterwards, I'll, I'll you know, find a, a full-time role in New York. Uh, and if I don't get it, you know, I'm, I'm trying to moved to New York anyway. So um, I submitted my application um, and he had, he had asked for a video, a short video talking about what you want to build, what you want to contribute and what you want to learn. 
Um, and I did my video in one take because I thought the chances of me getting this role were so slim that I didn't want to invest the emotional effort in right. falling in love and dreaming about like getting this, this, this job that I probably wasn't going to get. Um, and so, you know, I was shocked when a couple of days later, I see Seth Godin in my inbox saying, you know, hey, I love your application. Let's hop on a call for an interview. So we did a couple rounds of interviews uh, and, I, and I get the role. So I pack my life into six suitcases, get an apartment site unseen, move to New York to this little town where Seth's office is in called Hastings on Hudson. It's about 45 minutes outside of New York. Um, and what was supposed to be a six-month role ended up being three years of working mm-hmm. together. Uh, and it was absolutely amazing. Uh, the beginning six months were kind of figuring out uh, what kind of projects could we do for Seth to maximize his impact. So we looked at everything from uh, certain interests that he had over the years. You know, he's really into artisanal chocolate, for example. So we thought, you know, do you want to start, you know, bean to bar chocolate company? Uh, do you want to start um, an an ad agency that promotes causes that usually fall into the tragedy of commons? So climate change and, and other issues where people kind of think like, oh, like that's not personally my responsibility. What if we started an ad agency that promoted positive messages? Um, we thought about, you know, we want to start, you know, something in tech, like a mobile gaming app or something like that. Uh, and we we landed on education. Uh, and the, the reason for that was, was, you know, pretty simple in that Seth had has been a teacher for the past 30 years. He's written over 18 best-selling books. He's done, you know, more talks and workshops, you know, than he can count. He writes his daily blog. So he's made such a big impact for millions of people around the world by teaching his principles on creativity, marketing, getting started, right? And so we thought, all right, what if we lean deeper into this? Um, And one of the insights that we had was that people are reading fewer and fewer books than they than they were, you know, five, 10, 20 years ago. Uh, yes. I forget what the, the actual number is, but um, but uh that the number has steadily been trending downwards. Um, and so for someone like Seth, who's you know, bread and butter's core is being an author, um, it's kind of upsetting, right? It's like oh, people, I'm an right. author, like people aren't reading anymore. Um, so what are ways that we can update the the medium that that Seth's teaching in to be more resonant with the way that people are consuming media now? Um, so we we started looking into online courses and what was happening with people with uh, with learning online and and the trends that are happening there. So one of my first projects for Seth was creating a Udemy course for him. Mm-hmm. It ended up being one of the best selling Udemy courses of that year. Uh, it was mm-hmm. it was all about being a bootstrapper, how to bootstrap your business. Um, and in the process of creating this Udemy course, I realized that um, you know I was doing some research on on stats on completion rates and whatnot. I realized that the completion rate for video-driven courses was incredibly low. That 6 to 10% of people... That's what I was going to say. I heard it was 10% of people. 10% of people will finish a course. Yes. There was a recent MIT study that said that that number might be even lower, 3 to 6%. Mm. So a bunch of people sign up for courses with high hopes, lots of, you know, optimism and, and, uh, and hope for learning, and then a tiny sliver of people actually finish... And it just felt like such a shame because here we were putting so much work right. into this, you know, course and trying to make it amazing. And then just thinking about the fact that so few people were actually even going to watch these videos just felt like, like, why are we even doing this? Um, and it really made us question, you know, is this supposed to be the pinnacle of, of what the future of education was supposed to be like, right? Like, is this it? Like mm. you put out great content and then, you know, a tiny percentage of people actually do it. Um, and so we started kicking around some ideas for, you know, what could an alternative model look like? And so that's when we thought, well, what if we, literally did the opposite of what online courses do. So what if instead of it being um, mainly a solo activity, it were group-driven and community-driven? What mm-hmm. if instead of it being um, mainly passive content consumption in terms of someone you know watching videos by themselves, what if it were about active, hands-on learning where people are putting things into practice or actually, you know, if you're taking a writing class, you're not just watching videos about writing, you're actually writing, right? Um, and what if um, instead of it being... Uh, affordable, you know, the average course on Udemy is 10 to $20 per course. What if it were pricey enough that students felt like they had skin in the game? Yeah. And kind of like, yeah. you know, paying a personal trainer and sh- wanting to show up because right. you've already paid that person, right? right. Um, and so what if we leverage these different elements of um, social pressure, peer pressure in a really positive way? So mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, we we put that all together and created this one month course that we named the Alt MBA. And, uh, and that was, that was how the Alt-MBA was born. Um, and I have to say in the beginning, I was pretty skeptical of whether this could work. You know, this is 
this is 2015 when we launched uh, in the spring, May, June, 2015. And Slack wasn't, you know, that as big as it is today. Um, Zoom was not nearly as big <laughs> as it is today. And I remember people thinking like, is it safe to turn on my webcam and like talk to people <laughs> and learn with them? Like there's a hundred other people here. Like, is that weird? Like, privacy issues, whatever, you know, and now, you know, it's so funny because like, you know, especially after the pandemic, like everyone is just like, right. yes, remote, fine. Like let's hop on Zoom. Um, but I remember back then writing um, documentation, like how to, how to like use Slack, how to use Zoom, how does this work, you know, because there wasn't even that much, you know, documentation right. at that time from, from these companies, right. how to use your product. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and from, from that first cohort that we ran, we had 75 or so people in that first cohort you know, the first couple of days, I was completely blown away. All my skepticism just went out, went out the door. You know, I was, I was not sure if you could bring people together and, and recreate the sense of um, closeness and vulnerability that you often have when you bring people together in person, right? When you bring people together and you're talking, you're breathing the same air in the same room, um, there's a sense of aliveness and just like a spirit of energy that's, that happens in live events that I just thought like, I don't know if, if we can recreate that online. Um, and, and we absolutely did. Uh, and so before we move from there, one of the things, um, that I'm so interested, okay. So the Udemy courses were 10 to $20 at the time. And you said, if people have more skin in the game, the way that a trainer would be. So how did you, Oh, excuse me. Oh, sorry. I'm like flinging my hands around. How did you price anchor? What was the alt MBA? Like how, how were you able to differentiate the cost? When you said 75, was it a price barrier? What, what was the price? And then what, how do you think that that played into the completion and show up rates? Yeah. So there were about 75 people in that first cohort and the price was $3,000 USD. And we've wow, since increased different. it. Yeah. Wow. $4,500 $4, is the price now per student. So even today, like fast forward seven years, like even today, the average price of online courses, you know, the 10 to $20 for you to me, yeah. you know, even now some are 50 to $60, some might be $100, right. $200. But right. four thousand five hundred is still, you know, very much on the premium end. Uh, so you can imagine at that time, you know, years ago, yeah. that you know, when we released this price point, there was there was some shock. You know, there was definitely some shock of people saying like, "Wow!" Like, first of all, this is this is this is nuts that that you know we're in the the couple thousands range here. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And what's more was that Seth himself um, didn't personally teach the Alt MBA. He was live. He he was never there live. This was all about hands-on learning with your fellow peers, the group of other leaders, innovators, founders, creators, who we would curate with a strict application process. And there would be short readings about Seth's work or, you know, a very short video, but otherwise it was 13 different projects over the course of a month. So three projects per week. Um, And, you know, and and a lot of people just thought, well, you know, I might be willing to pay $3,000 if if I could ask that some questions, I mean, like, do I get to interact right, with right. them or something? Like, you know, <laughs> right. right. So like, but you're telling me that I'm going to mm-hmm. pay this amount and not, mm-hmm. and Seth himself isn't even going to be there alive. Mm-hmm. Like, how does this work? And so there was a lot of education that we had to do to, uh, to, to help people understand, here's why we're structuring this way. You know, I think a, a really, really big part of that was uh, a lot of people come to Seth um, thinking that he'll have a silver a silver bullet solution to their problems. They just think like, if I could only <laughs> Don't we have all five this? minutes. Don't we all? Don't we all have a silver bullet? To ask him this question, like he would just know the answer. He would tell me something and I'd be able to solve this and be able to move on from this thing that I've been struggling with for, for you know, for forever. Um, and, and Seth is, you know, one of the things that he, re- one of the messages he really, really wanted to get out and has been trying to, to kind of share with everyone is, that he doesn't have the right answer, that a conversation with him will not solve your problems. That, you know, mm-hmm. even if even if he talks to you and gives you some advice, he will even admit that there's a strong placebo effect happening or some kind of effect where mm-hmm. um, the fact that you are putting so much weight into his words because you admire him so much, you know, whatever he says, like, you're going to take that and do something with it and you're going to take action and it's going to be amazing. But like, if you just took that action in the first place, like you, it still would have worked, you know? So like, he's, he really doesn't want people to feel like they they need to depend on him or, right. or you know, that he has some right. secret sauce. Um, and so it was really important for us from a philosophical mm-hmm. perspective, not to um, dangle 
you know, Mm -hmm. conversations with Seth as, as, you know, as something Mm -hmm. that you would get from doing this program. Like the whole point of us doing the Alton BA was to help people realize that they don't need Seth. They don't need Mm -hmm. some guru, you know, telling them some secret that there is no secret. The secret is actually doing the work is going out there, trying something, iterating, learning, uh, looking for an advantage that you might have in a situation that you can, that you can, you know, really roll with and like really getting out there getting your hands already and, and getting in it, you know? Um, and so that's why we had, we structured, uh, the course that way. And, you know, when we look at court-based courses now, uh, Altenby was one of the first, if not the first mainstream court-based courses that hit the market. Um, uh, and since then a bunch of other, other folks were inspired by this format and created, you know, a bunch of different court-based courses. And now I have a company that, that, um, is a platform and marketplace for helping people create core-based courses. Um, And, you know... Okay, so I want to pause here. I want to bring... I want to pause. I want to pause here. So I want to make sure that we're hearing it very clearly. Cohort-based courses. So explain it to me like I'm Vive because I do think that there's something here for a business owner who has, yes, possibly created a course or sometimes dabbles with the idea of creating a course. Now, I wanted to talk to you specifically because there's a different angle that you're taking, that you're looking and that you're facilitating. And I'm like, okay, Wes, let's tap here. Let's speak to the business owner who has maybe invested in a course and completed or maybe not completed. Somebody who has created a course and for somebody who's considering creating a course. So when we talk about cohort-based courses, explain it to me like I'm five. Yeah, okay. So most people, when we think of online courses, we think of a set of pre-recorded videos. So yes. that, this is the kind of course on Udemy, on LinkedIn Learning. You buy this course, might be $10, yes. $50, and you have like 13, 15 videos that you're watching, right? Yes. And you do it all by yourself. So there's no community. It's a static experience. So core-based courses are the opposite. They are online courses, but there is a live component. So you are meeting with fellow students and with your instructor. The course might be a week long. It might be three weeks. It might be, you know, six weeks. We have C courses ranging from three days to, you know, three weeks being really, really common. Uh, But during this period of time, let's say it's two weeks, you are logging on and the instructor is lecturing live and there are breakout rooms. There are different uh, exercises that you might be doing. You might be logging on with your fellow classmates. The instructor's not even there. Uh, and you're working on a certain project together or giving each other feedback. It's much more interactive. So it's basically an online course that has a live and interactive component to it with a set start and end date. So that's kind of the, the very rough kind of nugget of what a core-based course is. Now, on top of that, many instructors, depending on the style of the course they want to run, um, tailor their courses to, to what works for them. So I think this is one of the, the most interesting things about a core-based course is that um, business owners uh, can really tailor it around their style and, and what they want to do. So we have some business owners who create courses and uh, they love teaching live. So there's a ton of live interaction with that instructor. There's a lot of Q&As. They're, you know, they're screen sharing. They're walking their students through mm-hmm. uh, different material. And then we have other instructors who... Uh, you know, want to prioritize being more highly leveraged. So they might have two Q&As during their course, but otherwise it's pre-recorded videos that then students uh, watch or read and uh, practice. Put, put, okay, the, put the example. work into practice. Give us an example of a course that just killed it, like got the whole, like embodied the spirit of Maven. What did they teach? How did they show up? What was like the time investment? Yeah. So one uh, course that's been really successful is Sean Puri's power writing course. So Sean Puri, uh, he was a founder before, you know, now I think he works at, at uh, a tech company of some sort, but he has this course on the side. Um, and his course has had hundreds of students. Uh, a single cohort had about 250 students in it and he's run multiple now. Um, and Sean's course is all about writing in the digital age as a modern professional, how do you write to stand out? Whether you're writing for social, for email, to your customers, you know, in the workplace, um, the modern principles of writing. Mm. And so Sean's course is two weeks long. And uh, the the thing that, that so many students comment on is the live teardowns that Sean will do in his course. So he will teach you like, here's how to write a great headline. Right. If you're a business owner, you're you know writing an article or you're writing a hook for a tweet or uh, the subject line for an email. Let's just say subject line for an email. 
here are five principles to think about, right? So for a video-driven course, it would end there. It'd be Sean maybe telling you that, and then you'd move on to learn the next thing. But right. for a court-based course, because it's so interactive and, and the, the practice and active learning is a key part of it, you know, you're there with Sean live. He just taught you these five ways to write subject lines. And then he will pause for five minutes and say, all right, everyone work silently to write five subject lines. Okay. I'm going to set a timer. He sets a timer. And then everyone shares their subject lines in the Zoom chat or in within the Maven platform. You share, you know, here are my subject lines. And then he will scroll through and pick a few and do live teardowns or will give you a live critique of, okay, here's, this is good because of this. I would move this thing. I'd move this to the beginning. I'd cut, you know, cut this out. So freaking good. Wait, is this Sean Parr from The Hustle? No, that's Sam Parr, who's actually Sean Parr's podcast co-host. Sam Parr also has a course, which is amazing. Wait, 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 wait. So wait, okay. One, I I mean, I'm geeking out because I love My First Million podcast. Like, I I feel embarrassed that I like it as much. My husband's like, why why are you attracted to a podcast like where guys talk about business like they're 12 years old? And I'm like, I'm here for it. I love it. I think it's hilarious. They're so talented. Oh, you're right. Man, those live teardowns are probably petrifying and amazing. Yes. Oh, I love it. So he's actually teaching and workshopping. So is there is there a pre-recorded is there a pre-recorded component? All of his sessions are live. He started adding some pre-recorded <laughs> components for people to you know, if you want to watch the stuff before the live session, but he'll still do the yes. live stuff, right? There's still the live teardowns. Yes. Um Sam Parr does the same. Sam has a course on um startup ideation, business ideation. So if you want to create a company and you are not sure like where should I start or you're debating between a couple ideas, his course is all about ideation. And so again, like ton of, ton of chances for Sam to give feedback for, uh, for students to give feedback to each other, to share ideas. So So it's so much more interactive and you, you leave with so, so much richer of an experience and so many takeaways that you wouldn't get if you were just kind of watching this on your own. Okay. So I'm going to pause here because I want to address like a different emotions that a lot of listeners might be going through. Some are excitement, some are doubt, some are questioning. And a lot of times when I talk to business owners about course creation, it's something that I've done. It's something that I've loved. I know that there is a demand and a market for it. And beyond just like the monetary value, the fact that you can impact somebody so distinctly by way of education is actually like life-giving in a way that people underestimate. But the thing that people often get caught up in is, well, I need to create fancy slides and I need to have a videographer and I need to know the upload process. So what I just heard right now is that an option would be, listen, if you're a gangster and you know your stuff, you could teach a live class, have time for breakdowns, have time for homework, have time for ideation, have time for uh, what Sean or Sam would call a teardown, whatever it is, that this is the possibility that can be facilitated by way of a platform like Maven. Did I hear that correctly? Exactly. Yes. Got it. So doing a live course is often a better way to start your course creation journey than doing a pre-recorded yeah. course. You know, so there's a good. lot of pressure with doing a pre-recorded course in that, yes. you know, you want your background to look great, yes. the audio, the script. Yes. Like if you've ever scripted anything, you know, it takes a freaking long time. It takes way And then it's than terrible because it, you're writing it. And then when you say it, you're like, why do I speak like a robot? Nobody talks like this. You know, like it's hard. It is very hard. There's the lighting. It's there's, <laughs> there's the editing and cutting. Yes. Together. There's so much effort that goes into it. And if you want to change any part of it, it's, mm. you're just like, oh, like mm. it's too much work to go back and change mm. it. Right. Like, so mm. the, it's not, it's not, it doesn't lend itself to being very iterative. It's like, it's very much like you make it perfect. You yes. try your best to make it perfect and then you put it out yes. there. Right. Yeah. So there's just a lot of pressure there. And for a lot of course creators, if you're starting out, you might benefit from seeing what parts of your curriculum, your students actually think is most helpful, right. which parts that you thought were right. helpful are actually not helpful that you could just right. trim out. Right. Um, right. And so when you do a course live, there's there's ironically more um, leeway. It's more forgiving mm-hmm. of a format because you are there live with people, right? And and you know that interaction that that carries a lot um, and and gives a lot to your student. Um, and so we actually see see uh, instructors who start off doing a core based course uh, and they love it. They continue to run it. Sometimes they add um, a pre recorded version of that course. So they sell it for a, for a you know a more affordable price point. If you only want the videos, fine. You know here it is, uh, and and they're able to do a video course that is tighter 
and feel mm-hmm. more confident with what they're doing because they uh, ran multiple iterations of a cohort-based mm-hmm. live version of the course where they get you know tons of feedback from real students who uh, are interacting with that material and they can see the student's reaction. Like, are people confused when I explain this thing? Oh, I should explain it a little bit differently or mm-hmm. spend a little bit more time on this. Or, you know, mm-hmm. people look bored when I talk about this. They already get it. Let me just maybe trim this out. Maybe this is actually a little bit too beginner for what my, stu- you know, what my target student really wants. So it gives mm-hmm. a ton of um, data and, and feedback to instructors. So why Maven? What what calls you? Like so, you you're you're building upon um, experiences. You're building on data. You're building on analytics. You're building on personal experience. And so then one day you wake up and say, "I want to create Maven because." Yes. So after leaving the Alt MBA, uh, I spent two years working with a bunch of different course creators. So Professor Scott Galloway from Section Four and NYU, uh, the co-founders of Morning Brew. Um, William Urey, the best-selling author of, you know, different negotiation books. Um, and I realized okay, that- wait, wait, I feel like I, because it's podcast and I have to be like very judicious with what I say on audio. Oh my God. Like the fact that you're consulting for all of these, like, like for people who don't know the name she just dropped, like I'm just going to geek out cause I'm just not a professional podcaster. I'm just like me. Dang girl. Dang. That's huge. Okay. So you're doing consulting for like the gangsters of the gangsters. And then you see what? I noticed that all of them had tech stacks and tech setups that were very janky, Mm -hmm. super complicated, Mm -hmm. convoluted, tacking things together, Mm -hmm. stringing it with, you know, super glue. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I realized it was because there wasn't, there wasn't tooling, there wasn't software that could help someone run a product like a core based course. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of tools for running static mm. courses where you could, yeah. you know, right. CMS systems where you could host videos, but there wasn't anything that was geared around um, the the additional complexity that a live component had. And, uh, and mm-hmm. all of these, all of my clients um, had teams, they had teams, they had budget, and it was still janky. And I just thought mm. like, wow, you know, if, if even people who have, you know, quote unquote made it, have such janky tech stacks and it's so hard <laughs> to, to, to string together and cobble together all these different tools, how is anyone who's, who's, you know, an expert, but doesn't have a huge following or a huge budget, you know, how right. does that solopreneur, how do these you know, right. subject matter experts who, who aren't already huge, how are they supposed to teach their expertise online? And it mm. just felt like such a shame that, yeah. um, that, that mm. someone with amazing expertise wouldn't have the access to be able to teach simply because there wasn't, uh, because the, the technical aspect was a blocker, was a, was a, mm. a, a barrier to entry. And so, uh, you know, I thought, well, how is it possible that that no one has has tackled this problem yet? Um, and around the same time, this was you know summer of, of 2020, um, I got back in touch with a, a high school and college friend of mine, Gogan Biani, who uh, was co-founder of Udemy about 10 years before that. <laughs> you know, and, and he had reached out to me. So serendipitous. He had just gone back from a you know two year sabbatical, traveling the world. You know, he had another company that you know he raised a bunch of money for. Uh, you know it shut down, you know, it failed. And so he kind of went on this, this, this soul finding journey around the world. He'd just gotten back from that and he was itching to start another company and to get mm-hmm. back into ed tech. And, uh, and he, he, you know, reached out one day and was like, Hey, you know, I've been talking to a bunch of people, uh, about education, what's happening now. I've, you know, trying to immerse myself back in it. And everyone who I talked to mentioned you. Mm-hmm. And I told them, I already know Wes. I went to high school with her. I went to college mm-hmm. with her. I'm just going to text her and be like, we should just hop on a call and chat. Um, and so, you know, we, we did a couple of calls where we were, we were brainstorming, sharing ideas. I was sharing about core-based courses. He was, he was really, really fascinated about, about core-based courses, uh, what we were doing at the Alt MBA, what I was doing with, you know, different clients. And he was giving me advice on how I could grow my consulting practice. Uh, and after a couple of these calls, we were like, our skill sets are a pretty good match. Mm-hmm. And we're both really bullish on this idea of core-based courses being a game changer for online education. Mm. Do we want to start something together? Uh, and, wow. and, you know, and, and that's, that's kind of how it started. And did you guys decide to bootstrap? Are you guys fundraised? What does that look like for you? Yes. So we raised from first round capital for our seed, seed round and then from Andreessen Horowitz for our series A. 
Okay, so it's just out here, just dropping names, dropping names, girl, dropping names like dropping bums. Incredible, Wes. This is freaking mind blowing to me. Dang, job well done. That is incredible. So, this is a cohort based course platform that gives latitude to creators, to thinkers, to choose the path that is best for them, that gives them the flexibility with a text deck that they're not really responsible for. So, okay, so Wes. When you look back at your career and where you are now, so you've gone through many different iterations. So you think about the 16-year-old version of yourself and then the person who packed up after working in Gap Inc. to New York through the ideation, through building, through the doubt, through the starting. So you know how to bootstrap. Then you've decided to get through funding. If you can go back and collect all of those versions of yourself, like pick the person who's starting something new because you've started multiple things new. What advice would you give to that version of yourself at every iteration? What would you say to that person? I would say to that person to worry less. Mm. I'm a worrier by nature. And it's Mm. something that I've been working on for, you know, decades. And I think especially when you are starting new, there are so many doubts uh, and especially if you're if you're someone who's a little bit of an overthinker, which I am too, you know, you can kind of play out like, oh, well, if this happens and this and this and this, mm-hmm. and you can kind of look at all the different ways that something might play out. And it's so easy to get um, to get stuck with not taking action because mm-hmm. uh, something could go wrong. And you know, I think that that over the years, working on worrying less has been incredibly helpful uh, for starting new ventures for working on different projects, for putting myself out there. You know, I think just reminding yourself that people are not judging you or thinking about you as much as you are thinking about yourself. (laughs) So when you're doing something, you're self-conscious about it, whether you're reaching out, you know, you're doing a cold email, a cold pitch, or, you know, you're, you're trying to sell customers, whatever, like no one is, you're you're putting out a tweet, you know, I used to be so Mm -hmm. self-conscious if I were drafting a tweet, like I, I deleted immediately, (laughs) like five seconds after I would delete it and then retweet it, changing one word. Okay. Okay. Whew, right. But like all the self-consciousness, like worrying less will really um, give you so much energy back and remove kind of the the swirling, just like just worries, you know, take all that energy and just try to try to reintegrate it into working on things that you can control, doing your best, doing your best, right. Even your situational best, you know, I say situational mm-hmm. best as in you're not always able to do your absolute best in everything, but try, right. Like try, put yourself out there, worry less about all the things that could go wrong, right? Um, and I think mm-hmm. that motto, it's, it's really been um, my New Year's resolution for multiple years now is, is to worry less. Um, and I feel like it's given me just so much of my mental energy back in whatever it is I'm working so, on. So as we head this down, because I feel like I could talk to you for like 18 hours, what are, what are two things like, let's get practical because it's one thing to say worry less. And it's kind of like, well, saying the sky is blue. Great. We agree. But what's the how? What does Wes do? Two things that you do to worry less, an actionable item that we could take away. Yes. Okay. Great. I love this. So one thing is if I feel myself starting to spiral, I think about what am I going to do in reality? Mm-hmm. What decision am I going to make in like the physical world? If I'm not mm-hmm. going to make a decision on this, then it does not matter if in my own head, I'm spending so many cycles thinking about something, worrying about it, uh, Mm -hmm. fretting about it. So Mm -hmm. I think about, am I going to make a decision anytime soon on this? And what is that decision going to be? Mm -hmm. And if not, then I put, I put that aside. So Mm -hmm. I will come back to it when there's a real decision in the physical world that will change things besides in my own head. So that's one thing. So So the other thing is um, something that I learned from Susie Batiz, who uh, was founder and CEO of Poopery, who was one of my clients also. I had some non-course clients. Uh, she's absolutely amazing. I highly recommend you check out her course. It's called Alive OS. It's not a Maven, but it's so amazing. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Susie talks about choosing uh, to live in easy world. So she talks about easy world. And the idea of this is that a lot of times, you know, we want to make things more complicated or we, you know, we, we think about all the factors involved, everything gets really complicated uh, mm-hmm. and, and things can get harder um, than they have to be. And choosing to leave, live in easy world is choosing to live in a world where things come easily for you, that decisions mm-hmm. are easy, that life comes easy, that works com- work comes easy. And it doesn't mean being lazy or not pushing yourself. It just means to think about, is there a way, this is how I interpret it, 
to simplify things, to simplify things first and, and go with something that, um, that is, is right in front of you and works. Uh, and so I actually have a little post-it on my desk, um, that, that says, I choose to live an easy world. You know, I'm going to do the thing that, that quote unquote feels easy. Um, and, and that's been, that's been amazing. You know, when I start thinking about complex decisions with, and, and problems that I'm trying to solve, it helps me recenter and re, um, just refocus on, you know, what's, what's the simplest way that I could solve this? Like, do I have to make this this huge complicated thing or is there just a really simple way that I can solve this? And it's so weird, but half the time, literally just asking yourself this question, you will come up with an answer that is way simpler than what you were going to do before. Mm-hmm. So those are two ways where, that I worry less. It's doing those two things really helps me to, to simplify things. I call it simplify first. And it's just been an amazing way to um, kind of cut through the clutter of when your mind kind of gets too far ahead of itself to just recenter back and just do the thing that seems the, the, the easiest possible thing that you could do to solve your problem. So good. I could not love this conversation any more than I do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on this podcast and sharing so generously for people who want to connect with you more and learn more about Maven. Where do they go? You can learn more about Maven at MavenHQ on Twitter and Maven.com. And you can learn more about me at WestKO.com and at West underscore KO on Twitter. I also want to give a quick shout out to our Maven Course Accelerator course. So it's a free two-week course for creators, solopreneurs, consultants, coaches who want to turn their expertise into an online course. So I've worked on hundreds of different courses and I know that it can be a pretty complicated process if you're starting from scratch. So we teach you everything you need to know about how to put together a curriculum, how to download all the ideas from your head and organize it, how to write a course landing page, uh, how to market your course, uh, how to create breakout rooms and make sure that the, the live uh, interactivity within your course is great for your students. So the end-to-end process of course creation, it's completely free. There is an application. Uh, over 900 creators, consultants, experts have gone through it. And we have one coming up uh, in a couple months. We have one you know, running every couple of months. So if that's something that anyone is interested in, uh, please feel free to apply at, at maven.com. That's such a juicy offer. I wouldn't expect anything less. Thank you a thousand times over. 